All right. We continue our study in our 10-part series, The Doctrine for Dummies. And today, the third series on uh, the Trinity. Last week, we started the Trinity, three lessons. Last week was God the Father. And we talked about the Trinity not actually being a biblical term. It was a, it was a term uh, from theologians to describe the the three-in-one God, three persons in one God. And I said that the easiest way or the best way to understand and to explain the Trinity, because it is a very difficult concept, is by function. And so the function of God the Father, he has the plan, the will, and the decree. He has decided what will, what will come about. He has a plan for his creation. He has a plan to create, and he has a plan for his creation. He has a plan for the redemption of mankind. And the second person, God the Son, Jesus Christ, his function is to carry out the plan of God. Jesus Christ was the active agent in creation, we are told, and he is the active agent in God's redemptive plan. He came into the world and he revealed God, and he got up on the cross, and he died for our sins. And so today we're studying God the Son, Jesus Christ. In John 21, 25, uh, the Gospel of John, John said that many things that Jesus did, so many things that if they were all written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain all the bit, all the books that would be written. And so his point is they were, there was a tremendous amount in that three-plus years. Uh, in John, uh, we, we have four uh, Passovers that are recorded. It kind of starts with the Passover and ends at the Passover. So uh, something over three years was the ministry of Jesus. He was very active, was John's point. In fact, the gospel of Mark is called the gospel of action because it's just a collection of stories, and each story is joined by the repetition of the word uh, immediately. And so Mark has him going immediately from one place to another. And you, and you, all right, well, we're here to study the nature of Jesus Christ, the nature of God the Son, Jesus Christ. You know, one critic, uh, someone sent me an email this morning. I, I read it, and it said, uh, no, to say that Jesus is God is absolute nonsense, the guy said. To say that Jesus was anything more than just a man like us is, is utter nonsense. He said, uh, like when Jesus prayed, what was he doing, talking to himself? I mean, can, can God die? I mean, there's no way. Uh, and, of course, this man, the reason this guy thinks this way, and this is a, a you know, semi-famous, um, I'm not going to tell you who he is, <laughs> but uh, he's very learned. I mean, he's got a great education, but what is he doing? He has chosen to seek Jesus only by his own limited human reasoning instead of seeking him in the Word of God. But, as you know, we're here to study the Bible and so that's what we're going to do, and we will make sense uh, out of who Jesus is, the nature of Christ based on what the Bible says and not just limit it 
to human reason. You know, the uniqueness in Christianity, what makes it different, what makes it unique, is the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. God took the initiative to invade, to intervene into a fallen world, to save the human race that was helplessly separated from God. And he came into the world taking taking on the flesh in the person of Christ. A guy named Philip Brooks said it well. He said about the uniqueness of Jesus, he never wrote a book. He never held any office. He never had a family or owned a house. He never went to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from where he was born. He never led an army. He never did one thing that the world thinks of that accompanies greatness. He had no credentials. He was only about 33 when his entire country turned against him, and even his friends ran away. He was nailed to a cross with thieves. He died. He was laid in a borrowed grave. Yet, for the past 1,600 years, he has been the central figure of the human race. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, All the kings that ever reigned, all put together, have not affected the life of man as Jesus Christ's one solitary life. He was a totally unique person. There was never anybody like him before or since, and there never will be. Is there any evidence of his existence and what he did outside of the Bible, though, real quick? The answer is yes. We have at least three more than this, but I'll mention three. One is the great historian Josephus, the Jewish historian who wrote in 90 AD that Jesus, who was called the Christ, and he went on to talk about uh, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and, and that he was, uh, his followers believed that he was resurrected and that he fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the promised Jewish Messiah. And then there was a guy named Pliny the Younger who wrote in 96 AD. And he wrote to Emperor Trajan about, the, uh, about Jesus and about Christians. And then also the famous uh, Roman historian of that era, that first century, a guy named Tacitus, who wrote of Jesus Christ as being the founder of Christianity, who was put to death by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Emperor Tiberius. And so even noted, uh, accepted historians wrote of Jesus. He was a historical figure. He was considered unique and, and amazing, even by them, even in extra-biblical accounts. But mostly, of course, we know about Jesus through the biblical accounts of the four Gospels. All unique portrayals of Jesus, each amongst themselves. Most people try to tell you that they're alike and everything, and they even call Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John the synoptics, which means alike. But they, they're very unique in their own way. The Gospel of Matthew was a Jew writing to Jews. And so he emphasized Jesus as the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. And he quoted many more passages from the Old Testament than any of the other writers. Mark. Mark, of course, was uh, a Jewish, but he was writing to Romans, Gentiles in Rome. 
And he was very to the point because of that audience was a bottom line audience. Just give us the bottom line. So he was brief. He was to the point. It's called the gospel of action. And as I said earlier, it's just a series of stories that are connected by the word. And then immediately, 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 just one from another. Man, he was on the move. He was active. And then the gospel of Luke, probably my favorite. It was written by a Gentile. Two Greeks, probably in Philippi, we're not sure, but I think all evidence leads to that. And now, Luke spent 10 years or more traveling with Paul. He was on his second and third missionary journeys. He was with him when he was arrested and spent like four years in jail. And Luke it tells us in, in uh, chapter 1 of his gospel that he did many personal interviews with all the people that were still alive that had been involved in the life of Jesus. Luke says that I was not an eyewitness, but I gathered all the information and interviewed all of the eyewitnesses and sorted out all of the material. He says he investigated all of the material and then compared and confirmed them. I like the idea of that. Uh, Traditionally, this is pretty cool too, traditionally Luke interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. How do you like that? Now, we can't prove that, but we have pretty good information from tradition. But also, he is the one, the only one, that writes the birth accounts and mentions the things that the angels said to Mary. And, of course, her cousin Elizabeth. So... Pretty neat. Luke puts in a lot more parables and a lot more information that you wouldn't have probably unless you had all the interviews that he did. And then John is uh, probably the most different from the other Gospels. He was by far the latest to write. He probably, the others wrote probably in the 60s A.D. And John wrote his probably as late as 90 A.D. Uh, he had no parables, not near as much teaching as the others or historical accounts because John was writing for a specific purpose primarily about the nature of Jesus. And so today we're going to look mostly in John to discover what the nature of Jesus is. He wanted us to know that Jesus was fully human. He hungered, he thirsted, he got weary, he experienced pain, he was emotional, and he died. But he was fully divine as well as seen in a series of I am statements, the name of God that he ascribed to himself. And he also gave us seven mind-blowing miracles all done to prove Jesus' identity, followed by the discourses of Jesus in speaking to different people, individuals, and audiences, uh, teaching that he came from heaven as God in the flesh, to reveal God by speaking the words of God, doing the works, the miracles of God, and, of course, carrying out God's redemptive plan. Uh, you know, the, the, the concept of, of John in John chapter 1, when he says, in the beginning was the word, in Greek, the logos. The concept there of the logos is that uh, in the beginning, before creation, from all time, Uh, you have the disclosure now and the explanation of God by one who is capable of doing that because of his pre-existence. He pre-existed the creation. He was there with God in heaven as God. 
And because of his eternal association with God as his equal in fellowship, he alone is the Logos, the Word of God that was sent to us. Everything we know about God comes from him, we're told. Uh, John writes, John 1.14, two great core passages, John 1.14, John 1.18. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh, the Logos, who pre-existed creation, became flesh and dwelled among us so that we would know him. And we beheld his glory. Then John 1.18, no other man, he, he's totally unique, no man has seen God, but Jesus has seen him and knows him. The only begotten God who is now back with the Father, he has explained, he has revealed to us who God the Father is. We know that through Jesus. We know who God is through Jesus. He's revealed him to us. And so John goes on then through the seven signs or the miracles. He calls them simeons or signs. We call them miracles. But to John, they were signs because he wrote of them. He, he gave the record to us because he wanted to know, wanted us to know through those miracles, those signs, who Jesus is. They pointed to something. They pointed to the deity of Christ. And that's why he wrote them. So Jesus himself said, and you can find this in many places like John 5, 36, John 10, 38, John 14, 11. Jesus said, if you don't believe me, if you don't believe what I told you, you've got to at least believe the works that I have done. You can't see the miracles that I've done and not know that those are the work of God, is his point. And so in the Gospel of John, he changed the water into wine. Only God can, by his word, change one substance into another. And that was in chapter four, uh, 2. Then in chapter 4, he healed the official son from a distance. You know, you're used to normally him going up and touching them and, and, and them saying, well, the guy himself had faith. But in this account, he healed him from a distance. He said, going back, your son's healed just by my word. And he went back and he was. Then in chapter 5, you have the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. This guy's not even looking for Jesus. He had been lame. He had been crippled for 38 years. This man had no belief. He had no faith. And he had been trying to get healed for 38 years. And Jesus comes up and says, What do you want me to do for you? <laughs> that seems like an odd question. You know, the guy obviously wants to be healed. And so Jesus heals him. But the guy's not expecting it. It's really a wild situation. And why? Of course, John records it because he wants us to know Jesus did it because he wanted to confront the Jewish religious leaders with who he was. Seeing what he did and what he said, the discourse he gave afterward, there can be no conclusion, no conclusion you can reach other than this is God. He has the power of God. And then, of course, the ones that everybody knows about in chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water, both there in John chapter 6. He literally created food out of nothing, and then the next day or, the, or that evening, what did he do? He walked on water. I mean, created food out of nothing. He, he is the creator 
Who alone is the creator? Who alone can defy the laws of gravity but the one who existed outside of the creation and rules over it? And in chapter 9, the blind man, uh, Jesus uh, gave sight to the blind man and they asked him, why is this man blind? And Jesus said, to glorify God. When you see me do this, you will understand, you will learn more about who I am and the glory of God, which is why I came. And then, of course, the really big one in chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus. A man had been dead four days in the tomb. And Jesus brought him back. Jesus called him back, brought his spirit back and returned it, brought the life back to him. And the audience was blown away. Where he was, the location of that wasn't far from Jerusalem. And all these uh, Jewish religious leaders were there and they saw it. And, of course, what do you think they asked? Who is this guy who has power over life and death? And, of course, that's the point. Who can give life but God himself? Are you starting to get that this, that, that this might be God in the flesh? I think so. That's what John is, tr- is trying to take us. And then you have the discourses that John records after each of these miracles. There's an interview or a discourse, a teaching situation after each one. In chapter 3... Uh, you have his, his interview with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes and wants to know, you know, how, how do I get eternal life? And who are you? And, and what's the, what, is, what does all this mean? And, of course, Jesus tells him that Jesus, he says, I am the only one. No one has ever ascended to heaven. But I am the one who has descended from heaven. And that's very important. Because what he's telling is, when, when he came, uh, man did not become God. And that's what all these other worldly religions are trying to tell you you can do, aren't they? You can become perfect. You can become God, is what they're telling you. Jesus says, uh, no way. No one's ever done that. No one ever will. But Jesus says, I came alone came from heaven. I descended from heaven. To reveal God and God's redemptive plan for mankind. And of course then he gives him the the purpose. Why did he come? For God so loved the world. You know John 3.16. The one you know. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that whoever believes in him should not have perished but have eternal life. And then chapter 4. The interview, the, the teaching with the Samaritan woman at the well, so awesome. She's looking for water, and Jesus says, if you only knew who you were talking to, you would realize, you come for this drinking water, you need to get it every day to sustain your material life. If you only knew, I would give you living water that will sustain you forever, eternal life. Jesus has that power. And as they go on through their uh, interview their his teaching to her she tells him that she's actually looking for the messiah she's looking for the man of god and jesus says simply that's me he said he uses the name of god from the old testament he simply says i am 
that name of God. I am that I am. In your text, uh, if you're looking at it, the translation will be I am, and then there'll be a he that's kind of sideways. That sideways means it in there. That guy added it. He doesn't think you can understand what Jesus means, so he put that there for you. But if you've ever studied the name of God, I am that I am, from Exodus 3.14, you know exactly what Jesus is saying. He is using the name of God, that holy name of God, that they revered, the Jews revealed so highly that they could not even say it. He is using that name for himself. And the woman believed and she led her entire village of Samaritans to Christ. And then in chapter 5, uh, he has this great debate with the religious leaders there in the temple. No, excuse me, there in Jerusalem. And he gave them four proofs that he was who he said he was. They said, you are claiming to be God. By the way, don't miss that. People say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. He not only claimed to be God, the people he's arguing with knew that he claimed that. In fact, they accused him of blasphemy. You make yourself out to be God. And, and that's what they did here. And so Jesus says, I'll give you four proofs. He said, first, the testimony of John the Baptist, the man that the people called a great prophet. He testified about me. Secondly, the works, the miracles that I do. Thirdly, the scriptures have been fulfilled. And fourthly, Moses, the, the law that they basically worshipped. He says, Moses wrote of me. And then in chapter 6, the bread of life discourse, where he tells that audience that was all following him, we're talking thousands, maybe as many as 20,000 people, wanted him on a regular basis. Well, you gave us that bread and fish yesterday. We'd really like that every day, please. Uh, they, that's what they said. They said Moses fed his people manna, bread, and quail every day. How about you? What are you going to do for us? They were looking, you know, they wanted something from him, wanted him to meet their physical needs every day. And of course, Jesus said, well, you're looking for, him for that kind of bread that Moses gave. They needed that every day. I am the bread of life. And the food I want to give you, meaning spiritual food, will sustain you forever, save you eternally. The bread of life discourse he says I descended from heaven I am the bread of life spiritual food I give you eternal life then he blew their mind in verse 56 when he kept talking about his flesh and his blood and they were getting kind of you know that was bothering them and so he told them he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and will be resurrected on the last day. And with that, they went, whoa, we can't handle that. What, what kind of talk is that? Cannibalism or something? And, of course, he was talking about he was going to give his body up. And his blood was going to be shed for them. And they would have to embrace that. Abide in it. That sacrifice of his for them in order to be saved. And then chapter 7 and 8, the debates in the temple, he says, I am living water. And he said, I am the light of the world. And then again, blew their mind, chapter 8, 23 through 24, he said, 
you are worldly, I am heavenly. And unless you believe that I am God, you shall die in your sins. Now, how plain is that? How plain is that? That's pretty clear to me. And then in verse 58, they start talking about being sons of Abraham. And he told them that Abraham expected him, was looking forward to him. He had been promised to him, the Messiah had, Jesus. And he then said in verse 58, I, before Abraham was, I am. Meaning he pre-existed Abraham as God. That blew their mind too. And then chapter 10, back in the temple, uh, he talked about being the great shepherd. And in verse uh, 30, he said, I and the Father are one in essence. They are of the same godly nature. And then, of course, the last teaching to his disciples in the upper room discourse, he tells them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then they said, well, we, we, if we could just see God, if we could just see the Father. And Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Pretty strong stuff. And they out there, theologians, scholars, are saying, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Are you kidding me? What have I just been reading? Obviously, they haven't been reading. And then the third way that the Gospel of John proves it is the I am statements that he makes. The, the name of God from Exodus 3.14 when Moses says, Who shall I say sent me? And he gave, gave him that name. And he said, This is my memorial name to be used by my people forever. Men have many names that they call God, but this is the name that I give. And they considered it so holy, and they revered it so highly that it was not allowed for anybody to say it, much less somebody to use it in reference to themselves. And Jesus uses it over and over with predicates, meaning he says, I am living water. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the light. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection. But he also used it. By the way, who can say that? Who can say, I'm the light of the world. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection. I'm the way. The Anybody here can, can say that? We're going to put you in a straitjacket if you do. We know you too well. Nobody can say that stuff but Jesus. But he also made those statements, I am, without a predicate. Simply said, I am that I am. When did he do it? Chapter 4 to the uh, Samaritan woman. Chapter 6, after he's walking on the water and they can't figure out who that could possibly be. Is that a ghost? Is it a spirit? And he gets in the boat and they just have this... Look on their face like, how did you do that? And he says simply, I am. He uses the name of God. That explains everything. Okay, <laughs> that makes sense now. God can walk on the water. That's not a problem. And then again at his arrest, he uses that name for himself. 
And then, of course, so many passages in, in the epistles of his disciples, you know, Peter and James and John and Paul, all of them wrote about the deity of Christ. And you also have the humanity of Christ clearly stated. Uh, great passage, 2 Peter 1, 16-18, talks about both. He says, uh, Peter says, we're not making this stuff up. We saw it. We were there. We were eyewitnesses, Peter says. We went up with the man to the mountain. He's just going to talk about the transfiguration. We went up with the man, and when we got there, we saw him as God. We saw the glory of God. We saw it. I mean, it's an awesome passage. So the humanity of Christ as well, and that's important too. It's important that a man die for a man's sins. It's important that he be fully human so that he could experience the temptations, so that he could be our high priest, so he could be our intercessor and our advocate with the Father. Uh, well, what are the proofs for that? He was born naturally. He was born of a woman. He was born as a baby. We, we see in the text in Luke that he was conceived. How did this happen? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the woman. And he was born naturally as a baby. He grew up very humble circumstances, very normal. He matured physically and mentally, Luke tells us. So normal and so natural that his own brothers did not recognize his deity or perceive it. And as you go through his life, you see he was hungry, he was thirsty, he had human emotions, he bled, and he died. Yet, each author is careful to tell us he was sinless. He had all these human characteristics, yet he was sinless, yet without sin. They all said it. So the importance of his humanity A man had to die for man's sins. His intercessory ministry was dependent on his humanity. How could he experience those temptations and experience the pain and the humiliation and the rejection that we go through? And also, Jesus was the perfect example. Jesus revealed the true nature of humanity, our perfect example although he was sinless. One last thing, though, about his humanity. This is, this is kind of uh, makes you think for a minute. Um, he was human, but he was far more human than we are. Pause for effect. Everyone looked up. See? He was more human. By that, I mean... We are human, but we have been tainted by sin. We have been affected by sin. We have been changed and altered from the original creation. We're not who we were originally created to be. We're not who we will be when we're resurrected. Jesus alone was perfect. And represents who man should be without sin. 
But the thing that bothers people most of all, and they've never been able to figure out, okay, he's God and he's man, but how in the world do you put those together? Theologians call it the hypostatic union. You know, two natures united together. Fully God, fully man, 100% God, 100% man. No mixture, no dilution. The unity of the God-man. We can't perfectly uh, understand or explain it, of course, but we do have is Jesus' self-concept, his actions, and the statements of the authors and the eyewitnesses. Of course we can't understand somebody that's perfect, but of course we can't understand everything about God. If we could, I would think there was something wrong with it. God is obviously beyond us. 1 Timothy 3.16, Jesus was manifested, revealed in human flesh vindicated by the Holy Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory, and lives as God in heaven at God's right hand. The inferences of this passage is that he was in heaven before, and then he became a man, he died and was resurrected by the power of God, and he is now back in heaven as God. Philippians 2 is, is your best passage. Just write that down. You know, Philippians 2, 6 and 7, you've got to have it. We've got to read it. Paul says, have, have this attitude in yourselves in verse 5, who is also in Christ Jesus. Jesus preexisted. He existed in the form of God before the incarnation, before he took on the flesh. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to. In other words, he did not remain in heaven as God, where he was worshipped as God and had all the prerogatives and the power of God, but out of love for us, he gave that up. He emptied himself, in a sense, of his prerogatives as God in order to take on the flesh, to come into the world to save us. Imagine that, being in God, in perfection, all-powerful, got everything you can imagine, total bliss, worshipped by the heavenly host, but he gave that up. He em- he'd emptied himself. He came in to the cesspool that we call the world with all its perversion and depravity, and he came in to do what? To be rejected? spit on, kicked around, humiliated? Yeah, for you and for me. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus voluntarily accepted these limitations imposed by the flesh. He did not cease to be God in any way. Uh, All the attributes of God he retained, yet he voluntarily accepted the limitations of the flesh. It's like a functional subordination to God's will to accomplish the redemption of mankind. You know what it's like? It's like, remember how fast Bob Hayes was? I guess I could use Usain Bolt, but some of you may not know who he is. Take Bob Hayes, you know, the fastest sprinter of his time. If he was in a sack race with me, 
and we had both of our legs in one sack tied together, he would be limited by how fast I could run. He'd be the slowest guy in the room, right? Vertical leap just above a paper laid on the ground, right? That wouldn't mean that he wasn't still the fastest guy in the world. He would be. But he voluntarily attached himself to me in order to run in this sack race. Jesus did the same thing. He came into the world. Jesus was a man as we are, yet without sin. So, uh, in conclusion, we've established that historians have confirmed Jesus' existence and what he did. That's an accepted fact. You don't have to wonder about that. And then in the Bible, of course, there are many eyewitnesses who are credible, good men who testified and wrote about much of what Jesus did and said. They testified that Jesus spoke the words of God, he did the works of God, and he fulfilled the promises of God made to prophets hundreds of years before. Jesus clearly claimed to be God in the flesh, and all his enemies understood this. They all said, you are claiming to be God, blasphemy, and they pick up stones to stone him. So now then, the tendency of people, what, what do they try to do with Jesus? They try to say, oh, he's a good man. He's a good moral teacher. He's a great religious leader. But the fact is, Jesus did not leave us that option. C.S. Lewis said it really well. He said, there's only three possibilities, and he called it Lord, liar, or lunatic. When someone claims to be God and do the works of God and the words of God, they, they're either uh, who they say they are or They're lying and they know it and just the lowest form of human life or they're lying and they don't know it and thus a lunatic. There is no other option. You can't say that he's just a good man and a good religious leader if he claimed so adamantly that he was God. His claims are true. There's no other logical conclusion. I saw this story uh, that illustrates the difference between Christianity, the difference between Christ and all other religious leaders. The legend goes that a man walked into quicksand and he was sinking. He's cried out, help me. Confucius came along. Confucius said, it is evident from experience that men should stay out of places like this. And he went about his business. Then the originator of Hinduism came along, and he said, this evil is an illusion. It's not really happening. You just think it is. It's an illusion. It is only karma. This will merely take you into another life where you will have a chance to do better. And the man continued to sink. Buddha came along and said, well, let that man's plight be a lesson to the rest of the world. Then Muhammad came along. And he said, it is kismet, the will of God. And he went on. Finally, Jesus appeared. He got in the pit with the guy. And he said, take my hand, brother, and I will save you. 
That's the difference. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us. Lord, thank you that you got in the pit with us. You intervened. You took the initiative and came to us. And Lord, we praise you. We are eternally grateful for our salvation in Jesus Christ, the God-man, the perfect sacrifice of infinite value. And in his name we pray, amen.